Welcome to Building Literacy, Public Library Construction, a podcast for librarians, trustees, and local officials who are exploring or undertaking a renovation, expansion, or new construction project for their library. My name is Andrea Bunker. And my name is Lauren Stara, and we are the library building specialists who administer the Massachusetts Public Library Construction Program, a multi-million dollar grant program run by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners, which is the state agency for libraries. While this podcast is Massachusetts focused, stakeholders in library building projects everywhere may find helpful information within these episodes. From fundraising and advocacy campaigns to sustainability and resilience, to the planning, design, and construction process, there is something for everyone. If there is a public library building project topic we have not covered, but that is of interest to you, please email me at andrea.bunker at mass.gov or me at lauren.stara at mass.gov. On this episode of Building Literacy, Public Library Construction, we delve into the depths of HVAC systems. HVAC, as you may know, stands for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, and does include dehumidification as well. Reopening libraries during a pandemic has brought the topic of HVAC out from behind the walls and into the proverbial light. We have read the ASHRAE guidance materials, and we don't fully understand them either, so we enlisted the help of two knowledgeable MEP engineers, MEP stands for Mechanical, Electrical, and Plumbing, who have worked on a number of libraries in the Commonwealth. Carlos D'Souza and Dominic Pinello from Garcia Galesca D'Souza. While there is more information in the episode, Carlos has graciously shared his answers to our initial questions in written form, and Dom has shared a spreadsheet for determining the amount of cubic feet of a room and therefore the appropriate size of portable HEPA filter for that room. And both of these documents are listed in the description notes and at the end of the transcript. If you have follow-up questions, send them to andrea.bunker at mass.gov and we will try to include them in a follow-up podcast with Carlos and Dom early next year. All right, let's dive right in. My name is Carlos D'Souza. I'm a principal and president of Garcia Galesca D'Souza. We're MEP consulting engineers. We've been working on COVID sequences for several towns and cities. Hopefully you'll get a lot out of this podcast. Hello, my name is Dominic Pinello, principal at Garcia Galesca D'Souza as well. I lead the HVAC department and look forward to providing information regarding COVID mitigation on HVAC systems. So we wanted to do this podcast because we are receiving a lot of questions from our librarians and library directors and trustees about their HVAC systems during a pandemic and how they can best upgrade or make modifications so that they can have the cleanest, freshest air. And our libraries really run the gamut. So you have National Historic Landmarks that haven't really been touched from the early 1900s all the way up to new builds. So each one is really different. So for instance, we have a smaller rural library that had no ventilation system and mini split heat pumps. And for a situation like that, where you're really starting with bare bones and a building that might not be as flexible as a newer building in terms of being able to put in duct work and all of that, what would you recommend for a library like that? This is really not an uncommon situation. It actually happens not just in libraries, but in school buildings as well, where there is not a mechanical system. So what's used is operable windows, 
and installation of portable HEPA filters. So we use an air purifying system. That's about the only solution that you can do without installing a mechanical ventilation system. One of our colleagues actually shared with us this hack where they took a box fan and put a yes. filter on it. Yes. Is that something that would be okay to use or should you really be buying something that is a portable air filtration unit? Uh, we actually recommended that be used in all the buildings and we recommended that two air changes per hour be provided through that ventilation system in addition to installing the HEPA filter. But the box fan is a good idea. So when you install the box fan, you should make sure that you're at opposite ends of the room so you have the most air circulation possible. However, I don't believe we would recommend just using a box fan, but use it as a supplemental means with a true certified HEPA filter. So just to clarify, you're saying that a box fan or something equivalent could be used just to create air circulation in the space, and then a separate filtration unit would be used to remove the virus particles from the air. Yes, yes, because what happens is if you're just using operable windows, which is acceptable by code for fresh air, it does not mean that you're actually getting that fresh air inside that room, well into the room. So that box fan just gives you that air movement, so it's sucking outside air in and discharging it. You also have to be careful not to obviously overcool the room in the wintertime. So would ceiling fans provide something of a similar benefit, Ben? No, the ceiling fan would just recirculate the air. So it's not the same benefit. What the box fan does, it's connected to the window. So it's drawing air from another window and then taking that same air going to the outside. So the makeup air comes in from the window and is exhausted to the outside. So a ceiling fan is going to circulate the air to move it within the space. And we don't want that because of the fact that you could be spreading virus more right. throughout the right. space if you're not having it be a supply in return, right? Yes, that is why we're recommending the portable HEPA filter in addition to the box fan. I'm sorry, are you saying the box fan would be in the window or in front of the window? It or? would be in the room, discharging out through the window. Out the window. Yes, out the window. So you're drawing in from one so window. It's an exhaust. And on the opposite side of the room, you're discharging through another window. If you bring in, as an example, 100 CFM of air, you're discharging that 100 CFM of air because the room is always full of air. So when you're thinking about this, my father was actually an HVAC estimator. And we were talking about this the other day. And he was saying how if you have a row of people and you're moving that air, the supply and return through that row of people, say it's like a computer lab type setup and you have rows with chairs, like a classroom, and you're moving that air from one part of the room to the other, you have the HEPA filter in there. Where would you put the HEPA filter so that you wouldn't be moving viral load onto those other rows of people. Because I'm thinking about the window placement in libraries, especially in this one library that I'm not even sure that they have operable windows in that library that we were thinking of. There are no windows. There are two doors. That's it. Right. So they might have to use the doors to be able to do that. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's one room for a library. They're moving all that air across that room. So would the HEPA filter just be capturing all of that? the portable HEPA filter, or yes. would 
Okay. So you yes. wouldn't have to worry about the airflow. No. And the actual HEPA filter itself, uh, there should be instructions on it so that depending on the room configuration, it gets put in, you know, either one end or one corner. Uh, so it blows through an area. So there are area limitations. So we'd want to make sure that you size it for two air changes per hour. So a larger space may need multiple portable HEPA filters to get sufficient air movement and filtration. Correct. But it's really done on a per square foot type basis. So as we're moving into winter then, and we're in our climate, which is the Northeast, we have the issue of what you were saying before, Carlos, that you don't want to overcool your building, right? So that you don't want to be changing the comfort level necessarily in the building for people to be inside of it, but you want to be making sure that you do have ventilation. Mm -hmm. So you did say that you should be opening those windows for increased outdoor air ventilation, but what considerations and factors during different seasons should librarians be taking into account when they're making these decisions? Well, that, that's a very good question. So in the wintertime, obviously, it's just the cold that we worry about. And usually along the outside of the building, there's either you know, some type of steam radiator, baseboard radiation to overcome that chill from the window. So that just needs to be on all the time. So when you actually bring fresh air into a building, there's very little difference about just having a window open versus an air handling unit that's bringing in that fresh air and then treats it. You're basically doing the same thing at the window. So in the wintertime, that's what you need to make sure that you have enough capacity in your heating system to overcome that open window so that you don't freeze the space. But in the cooling season, it's a little different because if you have air conditioning in your building and you bring in humid air, then you may have a problem with condensation. Once you have condensation, especially on older buildings, you have to be careful of mold. And also the fact that we're dealing with libraries where paper is mm. throughout. So if you introduce humidity into the collections, there could also be ramifications there for the materials that the library offers. Yes. But doesn't air conditioning by definition have fresh air coming in via the system? I mean, do you have to have the windows open as well? No, you don't. If you have an air conditioning system and you don't open the windows, then that's exactly how you should operate it. You should operate it so that you have the most amount of ventilation possible. So if it's a recirculated air type air handler and you can isolate it so it's 100% outside air and can still maintain the temperature in the space, that would be ideal. But that's why you do it at the air handler because that's where the condensation occurs on the cooling coil. Air conditioning and ventilation aren't necessarily the same thing. You could have the example that was given before about the mini split system. If you just had operable windows, that's your ventilation system. And the VRF mini split is your air conditioning system. So the two have to be considered together. And regarding Andrea's question earlier or statement about concerns for humidity in the summertime with collections, there's also concern in the wintertime with low humidity conditions. So increased outdoor air when it's dry and cold could present low humidity conditions, which have to be considered as well. Do I understand it correctly that in terms of humidity within 
reasonable limits, the greatest damage is done rather than what the actual level is. It's the range. In, in other words, if it goes way down and way up and way down and way up, that's more damaging than keeping it level at a certain place. That's our understanding as well. When a material goes through extreme humidity conditions, that's when damage could likely occur. The ranges are typically recommended would be to try to keep within in the wintertime 25% and in the summertime, no higher than 60% in terms of thermal comfort. There have been some studies on the CDC recommending higher wintertime relative humidity levels up to 40% due to the COVID-19 replication occurring higher but humidity levels that are lower. So again, that presents another challenge to make sure we don't have very low humidity levels within the space. So one thing when you talk about humidity, you have to look at, it's not just humidity, it's humidity and temperature. So Humidity at 60% or 70% when it's 40 degrees is different than humidity when it's 60% or 70% at 80 or 90 degrees or even 70 degrees for that matter. So there are two things that you look at. One is the occupant comfort for humidity and temperature. And then you look at the product stability. Well, as an example, hardwood floors, if you don't maintain a temperature and your humidity for a period of time, even on new floors, what you should do is take the product and you put it into that space, let it stay there for a few days before you actually install it, just so it stabilizes to its environment. And I think with materials, our preservation specialist has mentioned that it takes five hours for a material to acclimate to its surroundings. And we do have libraries where they don't have insulated rooms where they have materials. And so you're having that temperature fluctuation occurring mm -hmm. with the nighttime temperatures and then the daytime temperatures. But they are not being as strict anymore with materials in terms of temperature. They're changing that and becoming a little bit more flexible with it. So in the wintertime, when the humidity levels really drop, and you can have the humidity levels down to 15% RH, something like that. It's just very, very dry. So uh, one of the systems I think that you'll be looking at in the future is actually doing some type of humidity control in the winter. So you're somewhere around that 40% RH. So it's just not as dry, 40, 45%. So is that something that is difficult to achieve with current systems? that humidity control in the winter? Yeah, well, it's just costly because what you have to do is you have to put moisture into the air. So you either do that through steam or through some ultrasonic process. I don't know, Dom, maybe you can talk about, I know we've done it on other library projects where we definitely do the collections that are either historic type collections or even on new projects where we've used ultrasonic type filtration. Yes, um, not only is a high cost of the first installation cost, but the operating cost could be very high. So in the past, and it's still used, steam generated through a, an electric humidifier is an option. But as Carlos mentioned, ultrasonic type humidifiers, which just use ultrasonic wavelengths to formulate droplets into the air. Yeah, to energize the water in order to promote water droplets entering the space. It actually makes the water vibrate. Right. And then the water becomes airborne. And that's how you have moisture into the airstream. You're adding so it's a much more energy efficient means to provide humidification. They could be done 
with space type ultrasonic humidifiers or incorporated into air handling equipment if there's enough room and duct run within the system. And is it that the humidity slows the virus from being able to go throughout the space? Is that what the thought is with the humidity component to it? The CDC papers that have been presented indicate slower growth and regeneration of the COVID-19 virus between 40 and 60% RH levels at thermal comfort temperatures between 70 and 75 degrees. So as Carlos mentioned, it's temperature and humidity. And what they found is between 40 and 60% RH and 70 to 75 degrees, those are the ideal temperatures that slow the virus growth. So it's the replication of the virus, the viral load increasing in the state. Correct. It won't eliminate it, but it will slow the growth. And therefore, the hope is that whatever filtration system you have can therefore then handle the amount of viral load that might be being produced, that it's not being produced rapidly in the space and then creating more concentrated. Yes, that along with good cleaning of the space. I mean, surfaces or? Surface, yes. Yes, the HVAC distribution, while it's been shown that there's a chance that the COVID-19 virus is uh, airborne and could distribute through HVAC systems, there's not definitive testing to indicate that. There's a likelihood. However, there has been shown that the virus lives on surfaces. So through coughing and sneezing, if one's not using uh, mask, PPE, that would likely fall to a surface because those droplets are heavier and not get airborne. So there's both aspects that need to be considered. Right. That falls under cleaning and disinfection. And IMLS has done several studies on different surfaces to see how long the virus lives on different library materials. Right now we're awaiting the results of their testing on furniture, different types of materials there and surfaces. So that will be interesting when that comes out. But some of their tests, it will say, you know, we tested for six days. This is through the Realm project and you could still see viral load on some of these surfaces, but we're not sure what the level of viral load is that is on the surfaces, whether or not it's something that could result in contracting COVID. They're doing it in isolation. They're looking at these different scenarios. And and the biggest problem is that nobody knows yet how much virus produces the disease. That's the big disconnect. We can measure Mm -hmm. stuff all day long, but they still don't know the mechanism for what causes some people to get sick and others to not get sick or not have symptoms. Although now they're saying that there's one strain that seems to be more contagious than others. In Mm. Texas, they've shown some evidence of that, which is a little bit scary to see as these strains develop. Before we were talking about filtration, and what we've heard in a lot of the webinars we've gone to and when talking to different architects about what they're specking, they're looking at MERV 13 or higher filters. But what should libraries look for in terms of MERV 13 filters? What are the ramifications of that that they should think about as well? But then the other component to this is because we heard something on a federal facilities webinar the other day 
is that the rush to create lead compliant MERV-13 filters resulted in filters that lose their electrostatic properties over time and therefore operate the same as a MERV-8 filter. So what should librarians and library directors and trustees be looking for in terms of filtration that would be what is deemed to be adequate during this pandemic? Well, I think one of the things you need to do is make sure that the maintenance procedures on the filters are done. There's an ASHRAE standard. It's an ASHRAE standard 180. Year 2018 is the one that we follow. And there are two tables in there, 5-1 and 5-2. And in those tables, there's a bunch of various maintenance type requirements for air distribution systems, coils, uh, equipment, and so forth. So for a filter, they recommend that you inspect it, not necessarily change it, but inspect it quarterly, right? So, you know, every three months, you should be looking at that filter to make sure that it's working. And that one, it's not plugged. A plugged filter will have the same situation happen where you lose that electrostatic charge on the filter, but you can lose that. You could lose it within just several weeks. So it needs to be checked regularly. That's how you would achieve that. As far as using a MERV-13 and just go to a MERV-8 because you'll end up there anyway. I think the MERV-13, you started a much higher particulate filtration than a MERV-8. So I would have to say that I would agree with lead with using a MERV-13 or higher. I also think it's important when purchasing the filters, make sure that the manufacturer is a industry-recognized filter manufacturer. There is a jump to the market by some manufacturers that might not have done the certified testing that other reputable filter manufacturers have. So when purchasing filters, it should be recommended that the certification of that filter is reviewed. There are ASHRAE tests. ASHRAE doesn't certify, but ASHRAE does provide testing procedures and criteria that a lot of manufacturers, reputable manufacturers, will have tested by independent labs, such as ASTM. Yeah, I would also recommend that a service company actually be hired by the library. They work on a schedule. So if you hire a service company, the work will get done. Now, you'd obviously need to oversee that, but by doing that, I think will help filter replacements and having the system work more efficiently. Plug filter also, you're bringing in less outside air as an example. So it's more than just a filter. You need to make sure it's clean. If it's plugged, you don't have as much air going through it. We were in a webinar the other day and they said that a new filter isn't necessarily better than a filter that's been running already. Can you speak to that? You said before that you don't necessarily want to change them. Yeah, what they're claiming is that as you plug the filter, it actually will capture more particles because less is going through that filter. But the issue I have with that is that you're also reducing the amount of fresh air that's going through that filter and the amount of air changes that are being provided. As you create a plugged filter, what's called static pressure in the system builds up, which means that the fans need to work that much more. And of course, the fan doesn't know how much it produces. It it turns on and it is what it is. As an example, a fan doesn't know that it produces, you know, as an example, 100 CFM at a quarter horsepower, as an example. It doesn't know that. So it's based on the static pressure that you design to. If you increase that static pressure, but by their analysis, if you leave a plug filter in and never change it, that would be ideal in that scenario. And that's just not the case. Means to 
overcome that, but that would require additional controls that would ramp up a fan, by example, like a VFD, where the speed is increased to overcome that additional filter loading. But if a system doesn't have that, as Carlos indicated, the amount of airflow is just going to be reduced. And you're using more energy as well. Correct. Can you speak to a situation that a lot of our smaller libraries find themselves in, and that's that fans in their HVAC systems are not powerful enough to handle a MERV-13 filter? What would you recommend for them? Is there something else they can do, or do they have to bite the bullet and install a more powerful fan? And can you also speak to the importance of installing these filters correctly? For libraries that don't have air handling equipment that cannot handle higher efficiency filters such as MERV-13, our recommendation would be to supplement with portable HEPA filters within the space. It's very important to provide filters that are compatible with the currently installed HVAC system because if higher efficiency filters are installed where the equipment is not designed to overcome the pressure drop of those higher efficiency filters. Airflow could be reduced. Airflow reduction could not possibly only cause reduced airflow, but more major problems such as freezing of air handling coils or freeze ups of air conditioning coils within the system. Yeah, also the way equipment is designed, it's designed for a certain amount of CFM at a certain amount of static pressure. Just simply replacing a fan on a piece of equipment does not necessarily mean you're gonna get the right CFM out. It's designed for a specific CFM at a certain static pressure. And when you're talking about the portable HEPA filters, are they all similar? Are there ones that libraries should be looking at over others? Dom, you should answer this one. You just did a very good analysis over at a very small building. It's a college prep building in Boston about 20,000 square feet, similar to very small libraries, and they have a steam system. You may want to just go through what you did for that analysis, Tom. So it's very important that you look for certification of the HEPA and make sure that it's truly a HEPA filter. Some manufacturers will claim HEPA, but just use that word and not provide the backup. So it'd be important first to make sure that it's truly a certified HEPA filter. And that would be manufacturers would have test data available that could be requested. Secondly, what you see on the market a lot of times is just manufacturers indicating a HEPA filter is good for up to 500 square feet, up to 1,000 square feet. However, as Carlos mentioned, it's really about air changes per hour. And that could change from space to space due to different ceiling heights of different buildings and building areas. So you really got to look at the air changes and make sure that the HEPA filter is sized for those air changes. So in order to do so, you've got to get the CFM, the cubic feet per minute rating of those HEPA filters and not just rely on the manufacturer's suggestion. It's good for a certain size room. Once you have the CFM ratings and can determine the room volume, then you could do an air change per hour calculation to make sure that that HEPA filter is properly sized for the space. That's the exercise we went through 
for the project Carlos mentioned. We actually made an Excel spreadsheet for that so that you only have to put in the room parameters and the spreadsheet figures out everything else. And we have it set up so the user can actually do the input. You don't need a consultant to do that. We can share what that spreadsheet is so that if you put it on your podcast, you'd be able to either link. It's a fairly simple spreadsheet. We try to make it as simple as possible. Thank you. So if you're listening to this, if you look in the notes or the transcription, you'll see that link to that particular spreadsheet. Let's shift a little bit to other methods of mitigating viral load in your HVAC system. So I'm wondering if we can start off with the germicidal UV light. If you could explain that in as simple terms as possible and whether or not you would recommend HVAC systems to incorporate that technology moving forward. And is there a way for existing HVAC systems to incorporate that particular germicidal UV light? I can explain UVC light, and then Dominic can talk about where you would be able to install these systems. But UVC, that's ultraviolet light, and the C is the spectrum of light. You know, we see light that's in the visible range of frequencies. In UV, we cannot see, but it's a damaging light. It's been used for a long time. It is proven to kill virus and disinfect. It's used mostly in filtration systems such as wastewater systems. Most of the wastewater pump stations have ultraviolet lighting for disinfection. We use it even in rainwater capturing uh, filtration systems. We recently did this at the King Open School in Cambridge, Mass., where we collect rainwater from the roof, and then we store it in tanks. And then before we use it to flush toilets, we disinfect the water. And that's all done through UVC. So UVC essentially is fluorescent tubes, and it can be installed in air handling unit, or it can be installed in ductwork. And Don will talk about that a little bit more. But the virus kill rate is at 99.99%. I suspect it's that because you can't say 100% legally. So it's stuck to this 99.99%. The one thing that I think will be coming up is to date, these are fluorescent tubes, which require cleaning quarterly and then replacement every year. So you have the same intensity of light. If you lose the intensity, obviously it becomes ineffective. I do see a future product, and I think it's already being used at the local level or the point of use level, which is an LED version of it. Once you have an LED version of it, then what that would mean is that the life expectancy goes from you know 1,000 hours up to about 8,000 or more, and then you only have to worry about the cleaning of it. So I do believe there will be a new technology coming, which will be UVC, but LED. And Dom, if you can talk about where you would install the UVC. Yeah, so in terms of HVAC equipment and UVC technology integration, it's really, I would say, four different types or options. One would be within the air handling unit itself, if the air handling unit has sufficient room to accommodate the UVC emitter and bulbs. It's often a good place for them because it's hopefully somewhere ready to be serviced. It also has another benefit of keeping the internal components, such as a cooling coil, if it's installed near the cooling coil, keeping that clean and disinfected, which could actually also improve the efficiency of the system. However, there's often not enough space within the air handling units. And then that may lead to consideration to install the UVC within the ductwork of the HVAC distribution system. Another good option, 
However, just really have to make sure there's sufficient room for access to properly service the UVC. The other two options are within the space. So there's terminal type units with UVC that can be installed. However, these should be installed high within the space just so that UVC is not a factor in terms of occupant health and safety. So they would have to be high within the space. These units have a recirculating fan, so they would disinfect the air through recirculation and UVC disinfectant. And then the last option that we're seeing is going back to the conversation about ceiling type paddle destratification fans. There's a number of manufacturers that are now incorporating UVC within those types of fans. So where we said just straight stratification fans might be problematic in terms of spreading the virus by incorporating this technology within the stratification fan could actually help to kill the virus. So those are the four options that we see most readily available in terms of incorporating into HVAC systems. And when you say stratification fan, you mean a ceiling fan? A ceiling paddle fan, correct. Yes. And so UVC, you don't want to see it because it's still harmful. So when the room is occupied, you don't want people to be able to look at it or it's exposed to people. So you said you can have it in the space if it's high in the space or on a ceiling fan. But does that mean that you turn it off when it's occupied and it's on when it's not occupied? Or how does that work? The UVC light would be concealed. When Dominic talks about having it in the room, it's actually, you know, as an example, it would be after a VAV box, either in ductwork, or it would be in the room in a register that you can't see, but all the lights contained within the, the compartment that it's in. It would be certified constructed units, certainly not a hack or makeshift add of a UV to a fan, but these would have to be tested and certified. And that's one of the good things about the UVC technology. It has been around for over 30 years. There is a ASHRAE standard for UVC testing requirements, where some of these other technologies don't have that. I just want to talk about terminology for a minute, because we hear a lot about UVG or ultraviolet germicidal irradiation, but that is actually using the UVC spectrum yes. of light. Is that correct? So we're talking That's, about the same thing. We're, we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. So the C is just that the light spectrum is what that means, but the normal version of it is that UVGI that you list germicidal, UV germicidal. Now, one thing I should mention is that the UVC technology is expensive to purchase and expensive to maintain. We've also heard about ionization. Yes. As part of the process that we went through on COVID mitigation for public buildings, we did look into that. So one of the ionization strategies that we looked at was needlepoint ionization. And the only issue with it is we could not find a recent independent test results of the claims of the manufacturer that for virus kill. So because of that, we did not recommend using that product. I believe the information we received was just from the manufacturer-specific data. They had hired a testing laboratory, but we couldn't determine if it was an independent testing laboratory. To me, if you're paid to review a product, it's really not independent. 
Do you think those tests are forthcoming for that technology, or is that something that hasn't been discussed or been seen in our realm? We are not seeing that as a dominant player in the strategies to mitigate coronavirus, but there are places using it. I just don't like to recommend a product that there isn't you know, real data, recent data that it actually works. We appreciate that. <laughs> are there any other technologies that you see coming down the pipeline because of COVID? Well, I think one of the, I mean, the technology is already here, but I think that the HVAC systems themselves are going to be quite different in the sense that more dedicated outside air systems without any types of mixing during occupied modes is probably going to be more the way to go. Systems that mix air do not make sense. And I think also filtrations of the systems. Presently, we filter outside air and that's basically it. But we end up with systems that have energy recovery components. So what could happen is you supply air into the space, the air comes back through a recovery wheel. Now we, even though the airs don't mix in the system, the wheel portion of it does. So that could be a problem. So I think you'll see more filtration in equipment as well. So I think there'll be more outside air, more ventilation and more filtration. And are moves toward that usually fast in the industry or is this something that will take years to develop? I think it's moving fast. And even the strategies of control systems are being changed right now. On our projects, we're actually putting in a coronavirus mode so that basically the HVAC controls person or technician or supervisor can essentially click an icon and put the building into that mode. So you're overriding the CO2 controls, all of that? We're overriding the CO2. So we have the most amount of fresh air coming in and we put the building into an occupied mode. Now, every library has a different type of energy source. So we have libraries that are running on oil, natural gas, propane, VRF, other all-electric systems. I put in hydrogen fuel cell too, because I know that's happening in Europe for some systems, but I don't think it's made its way here yet completely. But do you approach your measures for COVID differently depending on the HVAC system in place and what type of fuel it uses? Well, I'm not sure that the type of fuel makes a big difference on this, but the type of system that you use and its effectiveness for ventilation is important. One of the systems that we have been using, and we have used in libraries, in fact, Walpole. Walpole Walpole Library is an example. I don't know if you've been there or not, but Typical HVAC systems, you supply air overhead and then you return overhead. So you have the situation where the air comes down, goes back up, and then it's exhausted. Sometimes it doesn't come all the way down. It's just exhausted. So ASHRAE has what's called ventilation effectiveness. Walpole Library has what's called displacement ventilation, which means that the air is actually supplied low at the breathing level. So from finished floor to six feet above finished floor is all that we look at. And then we return the air high in the space. So the ventilation effectiveness by ASHRAE in a system like that can be 1.2 times that of an overhead system that has a supply high and a return low. And a system that supplies high and returns high has about a 0.8 ventilation effectiveness. So those are strategies that we're looking at and that we are using and have used, but not so much for smaller buildings such as libraries, but I believe you're going to see these systems for smaller buildings such as libraries. Well, just to add to the discussion on the Walpole Library, you know, the displacement system is great. However, we were only able to incorporate it into the new construction area. That was a renovation addition. So for the renovation system, we didn't have the luxury of 
as high floor-to-floor areas that we had existing structure and architectural features to work around. So there, we used what's called a chill beam or induction system for the renovation area with a dedicated outdoor air system that Carlos described before, which is 100% outside air and supplying overhead. So while displacement's great, it might not fit in all areas. I do see it becoming more and more popular because of its increased ventilation effectiveness. And there's also no mixed air. Can I just ask, in a library that I was director in, not in Massachusetts, we had a raised floor system and the heat supply was in the floor and then the exhaust was in the ceiling. Do you recommend that kind of airflow? That's almost a hybrid of the two. An underfloor air distribution system has properties of both displacement and mixing. So it is, I would think, a a good system that it's got some of the displacement features, but it does have some mixed air action. But overall, it would depend upon your air handling unit level and how much fresh air you're bringing in. If you're bringing in a lot of fresh air within that system through an underfloor distribution system, it'll be highly effective. The underfloor air distribution is really kind of a strategy with integration to not only just HVAC, but electrical concerns for running electrical utilities, maybe trying to maintain higher ceiling elevations. So the idea being you have reduced ceiling plenum space because you're running a lot of the utilities through an underfloor air distribution system. The other thing it does, it gives flexibility in that the floor registers could possibly be moved if there was a idea that a renovation would likely occur you could just move registers from one spot to another spot in order to accommodate different places of occupancy and ideal distribution of the airflow the floor itself that can be a source to provide displacement ventilation it's possible that you had that in that library i don't know how old it is 2008 2008? In what state was it in? It's in British Columbia. Ah, I see. Because it was a geothermal heat source. It is possible that they use a form of displacement ventilation. Yeah, often why I say it's hybrid is because a lot of times it's just a small diffuser. And with a true displacement system, it requires a larger diffuser that has, you know, all these perforated openings. Whereas a floor diffuser on an underfloor air distribution system, it will use some of the displacement properties in terms of displacing the airflow upward. However, it's typically a smaller diffuser. And right when it distributes out of that diffuser, it actually has some mixed air flow properties. It's actually inducing some of the air in order to get that plume going. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would recommend libraries consider as they're trying to deal with this pandemic. You had one question regarding a fuel cell, correct? Yes, I did. Right. At present, the fuel cells for commercial buildings, they use natural gas for the stack. So they operate, they basically take some sort of methane and they convert it to hydrogen. So it's a hydrogen fuel cell. But the fuel cell itself, And we've actually done a project in in Woburn where United Technologies was the fuel cell vendor. It did not get installed, but it was prepped for it. 
But what you get out of the fuel cell, you get electricity, which is what you commonly know of, right? But you also have hot water, very high hot water, like 200 degree hot water. So with the hot water, you can create now a heating system, right? And you can also create a cooling system. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you can use what's called a hot water absorber. So the hot water absorber will work in the summertime. So the fuel cell would do this. It would provide you with electricity and then provide you with hot water and then provide you with a heating system and then provide you with cooling for your building. I've gone to Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. They have a fuel cell that's there and I looked at their operation. They use all of those items that I just spoke about. There's also Cape Cod Community College. I went there, this probably about 10 years ago or so, and they had a fuel cell there as well. The Department of Energy, it was actually the Department of Defense had incentives to install fuel cells. I'm surprised we're not talking about fuel cells more. It just does so much. When you actually look at the fuel cell from an efficiency standpoint, the fact that you're producing electricity, you're producing hot water, you're producing cooling, it's almost 100% efficient. I'm still surprised that it's not being used more. And I know that it's widespread in Europe. I was hoping it would be here in time for my building project, but <laughs> in a more residential application, but it just well, doesn't seem to be as available. Well, in residential applications, I only know this because I'm a sailor, so I have a sailboat. I do have a friend of mine who was also a sailor, and he installed a fuel cell on his boat and removed his generator. So on a small scale, up to about five kilowatts, you can actually get a fuel cell. It doesn't not need to be propane or natural gas to fuel it. There's other fuels that you can use. What do you think is holding it up in the U.S. that we're not talking about it more? Because we do things in life cycles. We don't necessarily look things on, you know, this is the right thing to do. So we look at paybacks on systems. And so if a payback is more than, say, on a public job, if the payback is more than 10 years, a lot of people get antsy and not do it. You know, geothermal systems, as an example, uh, comes to that. But if you have other goals such as, you know, fossil fuel free buildings, well, then you may want to look at a fuel cell if that's where you start from. It's cost is what it comes down to. If there was more implementation of it, then the cost would be driven down, correct? Absolutely. So it's kind of this circular issue. <laughs> right. It's a circular issue. However, it's similar to geothermal systems. Geothermal systems to date have just been so expensive. Typical payback is 15 to 20 years or you never achieve it. But the cost of the wells products, and there's a product called Rigan for wells, which is you know a great product uh, developed for the oil industry, believe it or not. And that has reduced the cost of the wells. It's really the cost of the well. If you can get by the cost of the well, the system makes perfect sense. It's energy efficient. It's a water source system used summer and winter. You don't have to worry about the uh, outside temperature at all because you're using your own closed system inside the building. There's no exterior equipment. So all the equipment that normally fails is outside. All that is now brought inside. Yeah, simple paybacks is why some of these new technologies just take so long to get. Yeah, and related to that, when we say life cycle, it's not just first cost you're weighing. You weigh the first cost, the operating costs, and the ongoing maintenance costs. In terms of the operating costs, if there's relatively low gas or oil costs, those might look more attractive, maybe right now. But in the future, if those costs get escalated in conjunction with a greater push and supply of alternative technologies, such as fuel cells or more people drilling wells, hopefully those prices come down. And if 
fossil fuel costs such as oil and gas rise, these alternative technologies will look much more attractive and you'll have much quicker paybacks. That's really the hope. Can I go back to the question about emerging technologies for a second? This might not be specifically HVAC related, but I've heard a lot about FAR UV. Do you know anything about that technology and its potential? So it's a UV technology that's disinfecting a part of the spectrum, but is not dangerous to humans. I'm not familiar with that technology. The only thing I know is that they do have different levels of potency on the UVC. And the further you get away from that light spectrum, the less effective it is. A far UVC, I believe it's just a wavelength where it's less harmful to humans. So I think it really comes down to when choosing a UVC manufacturer that they're certified and any UVC that's output is enclosed within that device so it doesn't certainly come into contact with humans. So to wrap up, are there any other considerations that our libraries should be thinking about as they approach this particular topic? An existing building or new building? It can be either. In some of the topics we discussed, it's not unfortunately a one-size-fits-all. You've got to really pair the best mitigation strategy for the actual building and its characteristics, especially in terms of older buildings with natural ventilation systems might be more limited into what they can incorporate. Whereas if a building system does have some type of HVAC duct distribution system, there's probably more options. However, you've really got to factor in where, say, potentially UVC can be installed What's the highest level of efficiency filter that could be installed without negatively affecting the room comfort temperatures as well? And keeping an eye towards avoiding maybe really excessive energy bills. It's a balance between incorporating these technologies and keeping good thermal comfort conditions. And as we talked about earlier, this space conditions for preservation of materials too. Right. One of the things that I would do, either existing building or new, is that any building that needs to use natural ventilation to meet building code requirements for ventilation should stop doing that. They should have a mechanical ventilation system that no matter what gives you the ventilation that you need mechanically. I'm not saying to eliminate operable windows at all. I love operable windows and they should keep them. But design those systems do not count on that 4% of operable area of a window compared to the square foot in the space, because it's an old strategy, but you can't always use the operable windows as an example in the winter or even in the summer. So when you have a pandemic like this, you want to provide ventilation rates very high and you should do it mechanically so that you can control it. When you open a window, what you lose is the control. You know, that's one of the technologies that has been advancing throughout the years is energy recovery ventilation. So by using energy recovery on the cold winter days, we're not just introducing that cold weather temperature within the space. We're using the space temperature that was already been heated to precondition the incoming outdoor air. So that's helpful in terms of energy efficiency. 
a lot of older spaces don't have ceiling heights for full ducted HVAC systems. However, uh, possibly smaller energy recovery type systems where it's based upon just the ventilation required might be able to be incorporated. And again, it's unfortunately not a one size fits all. Some might be installed within say basement areas, others might be installed with attics. And unfortunately some areas you might have to have installed exposed ductwork as part of that ventilation system. There are some ways that that could be designed and incorporated within the architecture so that it's not overly objectionable aesthetically. If you use some nice round ductwork that's painted, could possibly be an add to the space characteristics. But there's a lot to factor in. And in particular, another one is noise. We certainly don't want to have uh, objectionable noise within a library. So there's a lot to that ductwork design that has to be factored. And I like what you said about the fact that energy efficiency and dealing with COVID in terms of HVAC systems don't have to be opposed to one another or working against one another, that it can actually be very beneficial to have that tight envelope and to have that air coming through your system and being filtered. Yep. And actually a tight envelope is something that we recommend, whether it's a lead project or not, because it's one of those few things that there's no maintenance to it. You actually pay for something that saves energy and you don't have to do anything to it for the life of the building. There aren't many systems that can actually do that. So that's ideal. The other thing is the energy recovery systems have become so energy efficient. A typical system that uses a wheel is about 70 to 80% efficient. We typically specify a system about 70%. What that means is that if your outside air is say 30 degrees, right, coming in, and you're discharging the temperature at 70 degrees back to the outside, it means that the difference between the 70 and the 30 is 40. 70% of that is 28. That means we're gonna increase the temperature after that wheel from 30 degrees by 28 degrees. So it goes from 30 degrees to 58 degrees on just wasted energy and not combining air. So automatically you're starting at 60 degrees. You only need to ramp it up to whatever, to 70, 80 degrees, 90 degrees to heat the space in the wintertime. So that alone is just a huge savings. And there are either other types that are even more efficient than that for dedicated outside air systems. I know that After listening to this, a lot of librarians are going to have questions about the UVC, adding a UVC disinfection component to their HVAC. And I'm wondering if you can just give a very general ballpark figure for, say, a 20,000 square foot library. How much would it cost to add that kind of equipment? Hold on one sec. I actually have some pricing that's fairly recent. Uh, pricing per unit is about $1,895. That's for the hardware. That's for the unit itself, yes. What size unit, though? Uh, let me just see what this is based on this. I'm going to say it's, it's about 900 square feet is what it would handle. And what about installation of a unit like that? Well, it would vary depending upon you know the four different options I talked about whether it was installed within the unit, the ductwork, just a space terminal unit. This is a space terminal unit. After the air handler unit, essentially you'd take your diffuser out and you'd put this unit in. So the actual unit cost is $18.95. So if you took this and you, you know, 
take 50% of that as labor. So it'd probably be about $2,500 in that range. And that's for 800 square feet. Yeah, it's about 900. I'm, I'm looking at the size that the unit can handle. But what does that translate into for cubic feet? You were talking about the difference between cubic and Well, that, that was with the HEPA filters, the air changes per hour and the cubic feet are factors. With the UV, they're going to have airflow moving through it. So we talk about CFM when we're looking at the UV. So it's much more easy to translate, you know, with the square footage. So basically what this unit does, it treats up to 1,000 square feet. And then it says that it'll clean the entire volume of the room in 20 minutes. So you're essentially saying that for the UV, the ceiling height does not matter, but for the HEPA filter, it does, just in layman's terms. Yeah, the UV is actually looking at the CFM through the ductwork. Yeah, so in that ducted type unit. Yes, you're correct. So the CFM, while it's related to the space that it's serving, but it's sized based upon the CFM and the duct size that it's treating. Unfortunately, there's not an easy answer as far as, you know, like a dollar per square foot. It really, you know, is going to rely upon the, you know, technology that you use and the square footage of the building. The larger the building, that dollar per square foot will go down, whereas the smaller the building, the dollar per square foot value is certainly going to be higher. Yeah, so just on this example, it would be about $2.50 a square foot. And I've done exercises for a 100,000 square foot school, and it's around just over a dollar a square foot. So this is based on one unit. Right. But then you also have to think about the maintenance costs and the increase. Correct. So the, maintenance co the maintenance costs is the filters. The actual bulbs are $80 times two. So two bulbs is $80. So $40 each is what I had for parts that need to be replaced annually. And then just cleaning quarterly. So again, on larger scales, those bulbs are going to cost more though. Typically, they have on the larger scale UV, you know, say, for instance, the ones installed within larger air handling units, those are going to have runtime operation of around 9,000 hours of life. So if it was run 24-7 throughout the whole year, it'll last you just over a year. What we recommend is on that type of scale, integrating it into the automatic temperature control system or the building management system so that the UVC could run when it's most beneficial. For instance, if you're running 100% outside air through a system and you've got, say, MERV 13 filters already, you might not want to run the UVC at those times. However, at nighttime, when people have left and you shut the ventilation system off, that would be a great time to run the UVC just in a recirculation mode and kind of disinfect the air within the space, which brings me to another point of that whole COVID sequence of operation recommendations. Another thing we're really recommending is at least two hours before and two hours after occupancy, the systems should really run in the occupied mode so that we'll get an additional fresh air ahead of time and then additional fresh air and exhaust air afterwards as well. This is so very helpful. And I think it's helped us work through things in our brains in terms of how we better assist our libraries when they have specific questions. And, you know, when we look at the ASHRAE, 
it's hard for us to interpret. So for you to provide that information in terms we can understand is invaluable. So thank you so much. Unfortunately, ASHRAE is a technical manual. It's not meant for every day person to just look at and understand. I wish they had something simple. But if you do look at those two tables that I mentioned, it's a fairly simple table. Again, probably a lot of this depends upon how long we're dealing with the pandemic. The longer that goes, the more testing that will be occurring. And I think the better manufacturing of systems will help to mitigate the virus once more is known about it. On the UVC, it's actually split so that there are HVAC equipment manufacturers that are installing this product uh, as part of HVAC equipment. Then there are lighting fixture manufacturers that are providing this product within the space with the same claim. So one of them is at the user level in the space and the other is a centralized solution. So I should note that the CDC on the last recommendations that I read a few weeks ago, they were not sure that the virus is actually being circulated back to the air handling equipment to be filtered out or treated. But for the lighting, is that safe? Yeah, that was my question. Again, if you don't see it, UV is just like any other type of light. So it reflects, it can be contained within a box. It's how you use it in the space. You obviously want to have the UV light on and the filtration happening or disinfection happening when you're in the space. Having it on when it's unoccupied makes no sense. They are being done so that they're on when the spaces are occupied, but you can't see it and you're protected from the radiation. I think, too, this is where that, you know, far UVC was going to come into it. Based upon what I read about it, it's just safer than just the pure UV germicidal UVC. So that might be incorporated as well into future technology. I think it's going to be safe and it's going to be effective. Those two things have to happen. I think we're going to see more testing, you know, from these manufacturers that back up claims through independent third-party testing, I think that's really a key to ensure a level playing field by manufacturers. This was so helpful. I can't thank you enough for all of your time to provide us with this information. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Laura. Pleasure talking to you. And thank you to all of you for listening. We hope this episode demystified HVAC in relation to COVID-19 and provided you with a course of action in attempting to create the safest environment possible for you, your staff, and your public. Remember to send any questions you may have to andrea.bunker at mass.gov. We hope to follow up with Carlos and Dom early next year and get an update on the latest information, technology, and tactics in the fight we are all waging in this pandemic. Until next time and be well.